Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we examine the end of the first generation of punk and the 1980s hardcore punk, so roughly 1977 through the 80s, to ask just how political punk is and what kind of politics it promotes. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. Is there something inherently political, particularly anarchic, about punk music? Is that real, or is it an image? Is this is punk music an attempt to derail capitalist cultures that encourage you to remain a placid purchaser, an ongoing, endless, meaningless exchange? Or is it an attempt to exploit untapped markets, what all capitalism does? by commercializing anger and disaffection and thereby crafting yet another commodity to foist upon a segment of the public who thinks they're resisting being sold. Now, of course, punk comes in many different stripes. Not all punk is made the same and not all these bands remain uh, what they are over the course of their career, right? Some change quite a bit. By the end of the 70s, the old regime is mostly dying out or selling out. The Sex Pistols, Blondie, the Ramones, right? Blondie, of course, with their uh, their quasi-disco hits, have left punk altogether. Other punk artists are moving pretty seamlessly into so-called new wave music, a, a kind of more accessible, more MTV-friendly, at least eventually, and radio-friendly uh, music that retains some of the energy of punk, but encapsulates it within more uh, familiar archetypes and forms. By 1980, even Johnny Ramone, of the Ramones, obviously, was claiming that their newest album, End of the Century, produced by the renowned and erratic Phil Spector, was, quote, not the real Ramones, end quote. The death of the Sex Pistols, I think, is particularly telling, right? They flame out in January of 1978 after a uh, decidedly disastrous, although somewhat intentionally disastrous, tour. Uh, the Sex Pistols, of course, had come to represent, in some ways, a contradiction. Because on the one hand, they're loudly proclaiming that they are anarchists, right? I am an anarchist. I am, the, I am an antichrist in anarchy in the UK. Their slogan, of course, is no future, right? They're screaming anarchy and no future. But there was always the question of sincerity here. How much do they mean it? And does it really even matter that they mean it or not? And yet there's an element in early punk, especially the, the English scene, but also in the New York scene, the CBGB scene, of a kind of anti-fashion as fashion sense, right? And this became increasingly true, I think, as, as the decades or as the years progressed in the 70s. So you had someone like Richard Hell, who, of course, famously uh, pins his, his T-shirt together with a safety pin, right? So the ripped T-shirt with the safety pin. And yet soon that becomes a fashion statement of its own, not just anti-fashion, 
Sex Pistols, again, are instructive, right? Because they're tied in with Malcolm McLaren and his sex boutique in London. So here you have a, a boutique shop, a high uh, fashion shop that is promoting a kind of anti-fashion. And McLaren really sees the Sex Pistols. He was their, their manager and promoter. He really sees them as an advertisement in some ways for this movement that he's trying to create that's, that's based in fashion. The Sex Pistols and the Ramones, they had a kind of unfriendly uh, set of songs in some ways, right? The, the sort of out-of-tune vocals, sometimes the screamed vocals, but in a more or less radio-friendly format. The Ramones, of course, are obvious in the sense that with the, the throwback structures to, to rock and roll to the 50s, and even the fashion is a throwback to the 50s. But the Sex Pistols, too. When you look at a song like Anarchy in the, in the UK, um, or God Save the Queen, you're seeing songs that have a fairly straightforward verse-chorus structure, right, with a kind of anthemic chorus. They do all the things that you expect a radio-friendly song to do, but with just an edge that seems as though it is against the status quo. Now, you could say, well, you're being cynical, that they're, they're far more anti-establishment than you're giving them credit for. And yet, how anti-establishment can a band be that not only had a high-paying contract, but actually three in succession, each outdoing the other to some extent, right? Uh, this was a band that... As much as they are, are sneering at commercialist culture, they embody it in many ways. Their appearances on television, their, their sort of stunt uh, performances uh, on the boat, for instance, so that are outside of the, the jurisdiction of London right, and the noise ordinances of London, these are all meant to be open, commercialized promotion. But around 1977, in part as a reaction to the, the, uh, the Sex Pistols, some bands, some punk bands, start to take their politics a little more seriously. Bands like Crass, The, uh, the Dills, uh, The Dicks, right? Or just Dicks. Um, several of these bands, and then, of course, the whole new generation after that in the American uh, groups like Black Flag, The Dead Kennedys, and then all the suburban groups, The Minutemen, and so on. They begin to take the notion of politics a little more seriously and become a little, a little more um, precise in how they want to embody their sense of politics. And sometimes this works well and sometimes perhaps less well. But part of it is that the scene itself becomes more political, in part because of what I just mentioned, the, the increasing emphasis of bands coming out of and speaking uh, to the conditions of the suburbs. So that it's no longer simply a uh, New York and London thing, or even a New York, L.A. and London thing. But that scene started emerging all over. There's a new London scene, an L.A. scene, a San Francisco scene, and a D.C. scene, new New York scene, a Boston scene. But there are also uh, the emergence of all these scenes coming out of, of suburbs and smaller cities, the Midwest, Cincinnati, Minneapolis, Lawrence, Kentucky, Austin, Texas. Suburbs of, of D.C. begin to have their own uh, mini-scenes and so on. And besides just the bands, there's a whole apparatus that begins to surround the scenes, that make the scenes scenes. Because after all, a scene isn't just a, a group of bands playing, although that might be the core of it. 
but we're, we're talking about um, various means of promotion, means of interrogating the music, fan cultures, right? The venues, and, and the venues become not just clubs, because one of the things that becomes very typical of the sort of um, uh, political basis of hardcore punk in the 80s, whether the bands themselves were political or not, were the emphasis on underage shows. The idea that you should be able to go hear the music even if you're not allowed to have alcohol. And so these venues become important. The expansion of the possibility of venues. So no longer just bars, but uh, gigs occurring in, in firehouses, in, in community centers, a lot of times just in people's basements. Right? So you have uh, the, the various zines that start uh, cropping up. And there are thousands of them, hundreds and thousands of them at different times uh, throughout the entire country. And these were mostly um, very low-budget affairs, right? Some of them, uh, like Maximum Rock and Roll, had a more or less stable set of, of uh, workers, sometimes referred to as shit workers, right? Because they're uh, writing for very little to no remuneration. But sometimes you have zines that are just one person's operation, that he's writing out of his house and then Xeroxing at his mom's day job. And so often these, these zines, these, these magazines, were underground affairs. They were uh, low-budget DIY affairs. And that, the DIY aesthetic, the do-it-yourself aesthetic, is itself a kind of political statement, as we'll see. Right? Um, so there's, there's the zines, there's the venues, there's a kind of ethics, and not a one ethics, but, but many um, possible forms of ethics that are being promoted among the various scenes and within the scenes, right? Uh, An approach to politics, and the zines are, are discussing these things, ethics and politics, and Reagan, of course, in the 80s. There are also uh, aspects of historical studies. One of the things that you see a lot in the zines is a comparison to earlier uh, nonconformist um, forms of, of social expression, like Dada of the early 20th century, the, the anti-war artists who were also in some ways anti-sense, right? Um, trying to create poetry that was all, uh, that, that didn't make literal sense, that was just sound poetry and noise poetry. And the, situa the situationists uh, that led to the revolts in, in, in 1968 in Paris and so on. Um, looking for, a, again, a set of happenings rather than planned art, things that, that are of the moment rather than things that, that endure forever. So there's a kind of suspicion built in to some elements of punk that uh, against the idea of the artwork, of the, the forever standing artwork. And that changes depending on, on what you're talking about. For instance, uh, two of the great... Um, double albums and, and to some extent concept albums of uh, the punk scene coming out of those suburban groups would be the Minutemen's uh, Double Nickels on the Dime and uh, Zen Arcade by uh, Husker Du. Both were fairly well received and yet both came under a great deal of critical fire within the zines about whether or not a double album or a concept album was really appropriate to punk music, to hardcore punk music. After all, the idea of the album standing the test of time feels a lot like Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin or this, uh, the, the idea of arena rock, uh, the very thing that the punks were against, that they were trying to distance themselves from. 
you also, of course, had the style, right? Just like you had in, in the first generation of punk, but now it's becoming ever more aggressive. The mohawks and the dyed hair and the, the Doc Martin boots. And again, this idea of, of a, um, a kind of do-it-yourself fashion. So no longer the sex boutique of Malcolm McLaren, but this hodgepodge of, of collecting um, uh, forms of expression, of, of sartorial expression, expression within your clothing that wasn't something that could be found in a boutique, that was sort of cobbled together through uh, Goodwill stores and so on, at least ideally. And then, of course, there was the dancing, and we're gonna we're gonna return to that in just a second. I think that's a a good prism uh, to open up this discussion. But the the point here is that the politics isn't necessarily in the only in the lyrics. For some bands, of course, we have a lot of politics in the lyrics, and we're gonna look at some of those in the next segment. But to some extent, the politics is inherent in the scene itself, very much within that notion of the do-it-yourself. And that's why anarchy, I think, plays such an outsized role in the political understanding of hardcore punk. Whether the bands themselves were self-avowed anarchists or not, there's an anarchist sensibility to DIY that is that it's worth exploring here, that we're going to look at more carefully in the next two segments. But just to lay out the basics of it here, anarchy obviously has various connotations that we'll come back to. But at its core, it's bound up in a sense of basic responsibility and individual autonomy. Anarchy literally just means no head, no, uh, no, no leader, right? No head of state. So it's the idea that people don't need to so aggressively be told what to do that we can legislate ourselves to some extent. And most anarchist theorists believe that if that's going to happen, it's not actually going to come about through a violent revolution. Because what would a violent revolution do? In, in, the, in the form that we talked about before with Marx and the idea of, of, uh, of revolutionary terrorism, right? what would revolutionary terrorism literally do? The revolutionaries would have to take over the system. But it's still the system, right? And that system, because of its hierarchical, bureaucratic nature, because it is such a top-down model, would simply replace the capitalist state with a revolutionary state, which is more or less what happened in the Soviet Union with all of its clumsiness and all of its flaws, right? The state remained intact. And so one belief of anarchists, or at least of many of them, is that what has to happen is not revolution in the quick overnight sense, right? I'm exaggerating, of course, but, but, but the sense of a, a, a fast and furious revolution. Rather, what has to happen is a rethinking of how we relate to each other, that we create small networks of mutual assistance. We work together. We find ways outside of the system to communicate, to express, to understand, to gather information. And that's where the zines have a political impact, even if uh, they, they run the gamut of political orientations. Because they are small, business, not even businesses, they're small operations. 
that that don't last very long usually and that are are made out of the zeal of the people who create them and the people who collect them and so it's these smaller networks of people that will lead people to gain a sense of personal autonomy of not necessarily having to rely on a leader now this may or may not intersect with the the main form of dancing in um in the scene uh but i think it probably does i'm speaking of course of so-called moshing right the the t- kind of dancing where a group of people usually toward the the front of the stage gather together and they collide with each other right they run into each other uh colliding now various people have different takes on the whole ethics of moshing uh, Henry Rollins, the lead singer of, for the most famous period of Black Flag's career, talks about how you know one person gets knocked over and there's always a hand there to pick him up. And so he sees this as a, an expression of aggression that also has a sense of community, that people are looking out for each other. Whatever it is, there's a horizontal aspect to moshing, right? You're colliding with each other which is very different from other types of, of dancing. Usually when you're dancing, the idea is not to collide, right? Even earlier punk dancing, so-called pogoing, where uh, supposedly this derived directly from um, Sid Vicious of the, of the Sex Pistols, this idea of jumping up and down in place. That's very isolating, right? You're, there's energy that you're expelling, but it's, you're within your own private silo jumping up and down. But moshing is always involving a kind of mutuality. And in Henry Rollins' point of view, it's a kind of mutual aid or mutual assistance. You're, you're getting out aggression in connection with other people, the heat of community, and someone gets knocked over and you pick them up. Of course, other uh, bands uh, ranging from, from punk bands to non-punk bands, like for instance, the Smashing Pumpkins, take a much harder um, uh, view of moshing, that it's irresponsible, that it's just a, an attempt of a bunch of bullies to hurt other people. There's a study, actually, done by a professor, Jesse L. Silverberg, and a team of of scientists at Cornell University, where they conducted a set of simulations using videos of moshing that show that moshing tends to replicate the behavior of 2D gases in a state of equilibrium. Now, this very non-equilibrium, this very unbalanced form of dancing, where the whole point is is to collide with others, winds up replicating a state of equilibrium. They, they actually describe two scenarios, right? There's the mosh pit where people are sort of uh, colliding randomly, and they see that as, as similar to a disordered gas, gas-like state that reaches a point of equilibrium. And then there's the circle pit where people are kind of revolving around each other that leads to an ordered vortex-like state. And they say that they see this in various videos that they map and they use various uh, simulators to demonstrate that analogy. There's something very interesting about that, I think. First of all, there's this, the point of human volition that you can also see if you look at studies of, of traffic flows, right? That even th- that traffic flows are best explained not through a bunch of human decision making, but through liquid mechanics, that the same kind of things happen on highways that happen in pipes. And there's something very interesting about that to me, that when we get together as masses of people, all those decisions kind of wash out into a different kind of synergy, a different kind of, of being with each other. 
And that moshing, for all of its seeming antagonism, for all of its seeming individuality, after all, if I'm shoving into you, I'm pushing you away, that seems to be an antisocial form of behavior. That seems to be a type of behavior that's based on individuality, not mutuality. And yet, in some way, it replicates an underlying equilibrium, an underlying way of just being with each other. And here, I think we have something very interesting that we're going to explore in the next two segments. Anarchy usually is used to point to one of two, and I'm speaking very broadly here, of course, one of two ways of conceptualizing things. Either we're very concerned with personal autonomy, so there's no leader in the sense of, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. But most people see that ultimately that would lead to brutality, that that would lead to the uh, a kind of uh, dictatorship of the strong, right? A kind of... Uh, political bullying. Then on the other hand, there's an anarchy in the sense of mutual assistance or mutual aid of people figuring out ways to deal with each other without being told how to deal with each other directly, but working together. And maybe the mosh pit represents something in that uh, vein, that even when we're thinking on the level of the individual, making individual decisions that are based on shoving others away and bumping into others, a kind of uh, personal zone of, of shoving out, that even then that leads to a kind of underlying equilibrium, an underlying way of being together. And people often, when they're talking about the mosh pit, they say that you reach this moment of a kind of ecstasy, where you get lost in the crowd, where your movements are no longer entirely your own. You're making decisions, and yet those decisions are absorbed into a greater flow. And don't we often think of the flow state as something where we're not thinking out every single move, but that something else takes hold and moves us forward. Maybe anarchy, when looked at as, as, uh, in its best light, is a, an attempt to attain a kind of flow state. Let's turn to some overt politics in punk. move from the implicit to the explicit. If we're saying that some 
or all punk bands that the punk movement as such owing to its uh use of, of the fanzines the local constructions the local scenes and the way that those scenes are are um propagated and maintained if that already has an element of mutual aid to it and therefore anarchic in its roots there are some bands that are not content for that kind of implicit politics or not content with that kind of implicit politics but rather want to frame what they're doing in explicit terms and sometimes this is in rather subtle and uh, thoughtful ways and sometimes less so right Obviously, this has to be a very limited foray into this. We're just going to touch on three basic areas uh, that, that, uh, where politics becomes overt in the punk scene of the 80s. Right? We're going to start with Marxist punk, and then talk about anarchic punk, and then the straight edge movement, all very briefly. Two good examples of Marxist punk would be the Dills and Proletariat, right? The Dills, a California band, formed in 1976, but they were done by 1980. And we're going to see that a lot of the explicitly uh, political bands don't last very long, right? And this applies across the board. Uh, you know, you might think to yourself, if you're a punk fan, what about The Clash, right? Don't they remain um, explicitly political throughout their career? A lot of people think, uh, a lot of people on the punk scene uh, the people that we're going to be talking about now, including the Dills, thought that they were kind of already transitioning by the end of the 70s into something more um, accessible, more widely accessible, and less directly political. At any rate, the Dills form in 76, and this is the brothers Tony and Chip Kinman. They're in California. Tony was the Marxist. Uh, he used hammer and sickle imagery for the posters and wrote these quasi-Marxist lyrics. Um, they were so overtly political, or at least were thought to be, uh, that Stalinists and communists sometimes asked to set up booths at their performances, but the band refused to do so. Uh, Chip later said, we weren't Stalinists, we were shitsters, right? That, uh, that what they were interested in was stirring things up, making people upset, and therefore hope, perhaps making them think. Um, they're an incredibly influential band, first on the San Francisco scene and then the L.A. scene. Remember, this is the mid to late 70s, so this is early days in the American punk scene as far as the hardcore scene that's developing, not the New York CBGB scene. Their first single was released in 1977, and it includes the tune, I Hate the Rich, and then You're Not Blank, right? I Hate the Rich is an obvious uh, con uh, an obvious distinction made there between the rich and the poor that the 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 rich ought to go and dig a ditch as they say uh, that they they live a life without a hitch. I'm not saying these are sophisticated lyrics. In fact, quite the opposite, right? But what's important isn't necessarily the lyrics by themselves. The simplicity maps onto the the sort of on the one hand kind of brute force of the the guitar part, and on the other hand the kind of um, uh, the smoother delivery of the of the vocals. They were sometimes called the Everly Brothers of uh, of punk because of their their harmonies and and the smoother melodic lines that they created. Uh, later that same year, they released Class War, and backed by the song Mr. Big. So here they have basically four songs. Later they'll release three more, and that's pretty much their entire career, recorded careers. Seven songs that they released. There were other things that didn't get released. 
right? Um, part of the problem for them was that they were, be- as they were becoming famous, uh, they had met The Clash, right? The Clash recorded their album, Give Them Enough Rope, in uh, the 1978 album, in the Bay Area. And while they were in California, they met the Kinmans. They even left the Kinmans the stereo that they were using while they were in California, right? They asked uh, the Dills to open for them, uh, and the cover charge in the in the various venues was ten dollars, which of course doesn't seem like much today. But at the time, the Dills had built a bit of a reputation for not allowing uh, admission prices, door prices, to be up to ten dollars. Right? Um, this was seen as as a kind of element of their Marxism in action, and yet, of course, they're not in charge of this. The Clash is. Right, but what are you gonna do? You're gonna not open for the Clash, one of the biggest punk bands of that era, right? But they were called out as hypocrites, um, and so already by 1980, the bands the bands folding. We could see a similar lack of longevity and a similar approach to Marxism in a Boston band, the Proletariat. Um, they have a, a 1983 album called Soma Holiday. And of course, Soma, the notion of the Soma Holiday derives from uh, Aldous Huxley's um, Brave New World. And while we won't go into a great deal of, of detail about either Brave New World or the Proletariat, I think there's, there's something interesting about adopting that notion. Because after all, uh, just to briefly remind you of what uh, Brave New World's all about. It's a dystopian novel in one sense, and yet what it portrays is a dystopia as a utopia. Everyone is happy. Everyone is satisfied in this new world, right? And the person who is brought from the outside in and realizes how unhappy people should be, uh, he he's interested in unhappiness. Now, Soma is a drug that they take. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But Soma is a drug that the people in this society take. And and basically what it does is give you a vacation from life, from the anxieties and the disturbances of life. And as the person in charge of the whole thing um, puts it at one point, uh, the, the point of of desire, right? There's a gap, he says, between the moment that you have a desire and the fulfillment of it. And that's where unhappiness lays or lies. And so if you can close that gap, then uh, there's no unhappiness. This sounds like a utopia, right? But it's a utopia that proscribes, that it avoids any kind of advancement, any kind of development, because development leads to instability, instability leads to discontentment, right? And so this is where the outsider makes the argument that there might be a difference, ultimately, these are my words, not his, between uh, contentment and happiness. That true happiness requires something to overcome, requires obstacles to overcome, to confront, and that you need a certain amount of unhappiness to attain true joy or true happiness or however we might want to put it. And that what this society has is mere contentment, right? Everyone belongs to everyone, they say, so, so therefore everyone has sex with everyone. There's no gap between desire and fulfillment. But it's in that gap that things are created, right? And so the proletariat's album, Soma Holiday, is uh, part of, of what's happening here isn't just the lyrics, right? With the Dills as well. You have to li- the Dills lyrics are not interesting really that much. I want a class war is, uh, is only so interesting. It's the way in which the song is both um, exciting and loud and aggressive and yet fun that makes it work the way that it does. 
right? It's the nature of the music rather than the lyrics as such that deliver the real message. And that always has to be the case when we're talking about music. But notice that both the proletariat and the Dills are short-lived, right? Uh, these, these truly explicitly political bands don't seem to have real longevity. So that's Marxism in punk. What about anarchy? One of the most interesting to my mind of the overtly political bands is one that promotes anarchy, and that's Crass out of out of England. They're a commune or a collective. They're not really a band exactly, and they were founded at a commune in Epping, Essex, um, in England, in 1977, and they're at a a place called the Dial House, right? And and this is a place that's run, run is kind of a weird word. It was rented uh, by Penny Rambeau, right? Um, that's not his real name, obviously, uh, an artist and a drummer. And he at first got a deal to basically renovate the house. The house was in dis- disrepair. Um, and he didn't pay rent. His job was just to be a custodian of the house. Uh, then as he established the house as a livable space, he started to invite other people to live there without necessarily paying rent, right? Uh, This idea of a collective, a commune. They uh, are thought of as one of the first anarcho-punk bands, and they were incredibly influential. 
um, both in, in England and in the U.S. And they were involved in far more than just creating music. They were involved in direct action, and we'll come back to what that is in a moment. Animal rights, feminism, anti-fascism, environmentalism. They produced leaflets and sound collages and films as well as albums. They were involved in graffiti, especially in the London Underground, as, as protests. Subvertising, where you rework advertisements to subvert their meaning. Um, and they established squats. Squats both in the sense of a place where you live without renting by, by you know, squatting, um, but also squats in the sense of taking over, we'll talk about this in a moment, a nightclub uh, for a day and not charging anybody to come in for music and so on, right? Um, they were closely, at least at first, connected with the CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, right? And this was one of their political concerns. And so they were a pacifist group, at least at first. And we'll talk about how that may have changed. They were formed when the founder of the commune, Penny Rambeau, started playing around with Steve Ignorant. Uh, and at this time, it was just drums and voice. Rambeau on drums and Ignorant on the voice. Um, but soon, other members of the commune joined in, including G. Voucher, who was um, Rambeau's partner and an artist, a, a very... Um, interesting artist, Pete Wright, N.A. Palmer, Steve Herman, later Joy DeVivre, and Eve Libertine came on as singers, as, as female vocalists. They played at first small gigs in London. They even went out to New York City. Um, they, one of them created a uh, um, logo for the band, which combined the Ouroboros, the, the um, snake eating itself, a sign for infinity, uh, with the swastika and the Union Jack and the Christian cross. And when, when it's all put together in this way, uh, just about none of, none of it is truly recognizable. I mean, you can figure it out when you know what's there, but at first it just seems like a, a sort of circle figure with a, with a um, set of, of a cross sort of embedded in it, and then you notice the snake heads and so on. The swastika takes a little while, at least for me, to notice, right? And this is significant because what you have is a bunch of conflicting symbols of authority, right? Even the Ouroboros can be thought of as a sort of authority. Infinity is as a kind of ultimate um, assertion of, of power or longevity at the very least. Um, and then by combining these symbols of authority in this way, you're blurring the lines between them. They seem to cancel each other out. The group dressed in alike uh, in black, which caused them to sometimes be accused of fascism, oddly enough, but they did this in order to defeat the notion of a cult of personality where one member was the perceived leader of the band. Indeed, there are whole albums where, you know, even the front man, the supposed front man, Steve Ignorant, doesn't sing, right? There are tracks on various albums, and there's a whole album, Penis Envy, where he doesn't sing a single uh, note. In fact, he's credited in the liner notes as not appearing on this on this recording. Uh, so they cultivated a sense of contradiction, and this was part of their anarchic move, right? You had loud, aggressive music that was delivering a message of peace. Uh, they they were trying to get people, as they put it, to make up their own uh, minds, right? According to Rambeau. They had multimedia pr presentations, projections, and video collages behind the bands, and then they would pass out leaflets uh, and handouts explaining various anarchist concepts. So the idea wasn't just performances. It was to do something. It was to affect change. Their first album was called The Feeding of the 5000. That was an EP with 18 tracks, so you can imagine relatively short tunes, on the small Wonder label in 1978. But an Irish record pressing plant refused to process the album because they found the opening track, Asylum, blasphemous. Uh, 
So the band, not wanting to mess with Small Wonder, their label too much, not wanting to make extra problems for them, simply replaced that track with two minutes of silence, and they titled that The Sound of Free Speech. But then they decided to create their own record company, which they called Crass Records. And they released an extended version of Asylum called Reality Asylum, roughly six minutes, right? And Asylum is a really interesting track. It's basically a poem read by one of the female members of the commune um, about kind of the hypocrisy of the image, at least, of Jesus Christ and the idea of, of dying for the sins of others. They sold the single for 45 pence when most singles at the time were selling for 90 pence. Right, and this started their whole uh, project of printing on the um, covers, pay no more than X amount, right? And then the X amount was always a relatively cheap price to circumvent record dealers from charging unreasonable or even what might have been considered uh, reasonable prices. Now, for this first release, they didn't properly figure out the value-added tax in their calculations. And so they actually lost money with every copy sold because the value-added tax has to do with how many copies and all the things that are done to make copies. So the, the processing, the, the reproduction, and so on. And they didn't take into account that there would be that tax. So they actually lost money. And yet, to some extent, that builds into their reputation. So now, here we have an anarchic band that has their own record company. And you can see how this would fit with anarchy in a way, because it's a relatively small enterprise. And part of the idea, at least with, with many thinkers, uh, anarchist thinkers, is that this is the way to change society, not overt revolution. Because as I said before, all overt revolution does is you topple the people that are at the top, and then you put yourself at the top, right? Because you can't change overnight the way that a society works, you can't just simply dismantle all of the social programs at once and expect things not to be chaos. And this is why sometimes people confuse anarchy with chaos. But a workable theory of anarchy, or one possibly workable theory of anarchy, is that what you do is you start with local moments of mutual assistance and mutual aid. So smaller enterprises where there's no person in charge, people are cooperating. Cooperatives, that's what a food co-op is, right? And that's the point that people make with, with this notion of anarchy is that, of course, it's workable. It works all the time. We have food co-ops. We have other cooperative groups where there's not a, a, a singular leader, right? Um, so these things work on small, uh, in small ways, in small situations, smaller situations, localized situations. And that what it would take to make it more than localized would be not to create a state structure, but to expand that sense of localization and, and assistance. That then you have local groups uh, working cooperatively with other local groups. Now, whether or not that would actually work is beyond certainly my ability to tell. But the point is that anarchy, at least on a small level, does work, right? If people take responsibility and cooperate. And that's what Crass was trying to demonstrate. 
They were actually quite critical of Marxism. In fact, their 1980 song, Bloody Revolutions, from the album Stations of the Crass, uh, or from around the time of the album Stations of the Crass, at least, uh, was, a, was a critique of, of Marxism, right? And its view of revolutionary struggle and, and violence. Uh, it's a, an interesting song, right? It starts with a parody of the Beatles, uh, right? You say you want a revolution. They're like, well, you know, okay, you say you want a revolution. And then you hear the, the nationalist march da dum 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 da da dum right as there as he's singing these lyrics about how revolution just simply wouldn't work in that way he says for instance one of the lyrics is freedom has no value if violence is the price you can't you can't create a system which is what he sees they see marxism is doing in which you're just telling other people what's right and what's wrong that everyone has to think for themselves work out their own system of, of values, and then you have to figure out a way to cooperate with them. Of course, the problem that people often say about, uh, or bring up about anarchy is precisely that. How do we trust other people? And so the fact that anarchy is often um, thought of as unworkable is precisely that. It's our, our suspicion that other people simply aren't reasonable. We very rarely think of ourselves as being unreasonable. Now, the band, of course, gets into a number of issues. They, they do interesting things. They have an album, 1981, Penis Envy, that uh, is a feminist, pro-feminist album, uh, sung by Eve Libertine and Joy DeVive. Uh, really interesting song structures and so on. It ends with this parody of a middle-of-the-road wedding song called uh, Our Wedding. And so they thought it might be funny, since there's nothing overtly offensive about that song, if they made a free white flexi-disc and tried to get a um, wedding or romance magazine to give it away to their readers. And that's precisely what happens. They offer it to Loving magazine and Loving distributes it in one of their issues. They, they create a fake business called Creative Recording and Sound Services, which just spells out crass, of course, Creative Recording and Sound Services. And Loving wrote that the disc would, quote, make your wedding day just that bit extra special. But when you listen to the song, the song's all about, uh, it sounds very romantic, you know, you'll, uh, you be true to me and I'll be true to you, uh, but it's all about how you'll never look at anyone else again, you'll never have love with anyone else again, right? This idea of the selfish aspect of, um, of modern uh, monogamous love. Uh, and then it ends with these distortions of the wedding bells, sort of showing that something is amiss. But Loving didn't catch any of that, and they ran it. And then when they figured out it was a, a, a joke, uh, they were quite upset. But of course, Crass had done nothing illegal. But the album did wind up getting them into court because some police officers uh, confiscated copies of the album from, from some record shops that ran it. Some record shops simply refused to run it. The front cover has a blow-up doll on it, and of course the album name is Penis Envy, and many of the songs are these sort of sarcastic takedowns of uh, modern views of, of sexuality and sex. The opening song, for instance, Spada Motel, is all about the way in which people see women and expect them to live up to a sort of uh, sexualized status, right? Uh, and there's allusions to foot binding, small feet. Uh, there's, there's allusions to, of course, being available for men for sex. And so whether this woman is a prostitute or just trying to live up to um, 
the, the, the sort of social standards of, of sexuality is, is somewhat unclear. Um, so they, won, they, they lost their original court case about obscenity, won it on appeal, except for that song, Bata Motel, which was uh, deemed, quote, sexually provocative and obscene, even though uh, what it's doing is it's pillaring, it's criticizing um, the, the accepted standards of, of female sexuality. The ban kind of runs aground on the on what we might call the direct action problem, right? Electoral politics, that's indirect. When I vote, I'm indirectly affecting change. But direct action is an attempt to work directly on a problem that you think that you can change or through your own action as an individual or, or as a group. So, for instance, in September of 82, they organized a squat. It's sort of like a sit-in with a concert involved at the London Zigzag club to prove that, quote, and these are the words of Ian Glasper, who wrote a book about about these scenes, uh, quote, the underground punk scene could handle itself responsibly when it had to, and that music could really be enjoyed free from restraints imposed upon the corporate industry. So, in, end quote. So, in other words, once again, this idea of removing yourself from the big conglomerates, from the big corporations, and still making things happen, making art and music happen. But the group, the commune, started to become uh, separate, uh, separated, or, or they started to find differences among themselves over this issue of direct action and, and whether or not it should be nonviolent or violent. And so the song "You're Already Dead," one of their last singles, uh, express, expressly calls out the campaign for against or campaign for nuclear disarmament, the CND, which they've long been associated with at this point. Well, several years. The band didn't last very long. Again, all these bands sort of seem to have a relatively short lifespan. By 1984, they'd been investigated by Scotland Yard, harassed by the police, uh, created and maintained their own label, which they saw as somewhat suspect already because they're telling other bands or, or being a... Uh, uh, they actually didn't tell other bands what to do, but they were a venue for other bands uh, to get access to recordings and to distribution and therefore had some kind of power over them. Uh, and they were actively being discussed in Parliament and threatened with prosecution under Obscenities Acts, right? What was worse, at least to Rambo's mind, was that they were basically celebrities. So he says, in uh, looking back on this, we found ourselves in a strange and frightening arena. We wanted to make our views public, wanted to share them with like-minded people, but now those views were being analyzed by those dark shadows who inhabited the corridors of power. We gained a form of political power, found a voice, were being treated with a slightly awed respect. But was that really what we wanted? Was that what we had set out to achieve all those years ago? End quote. So by getting their voice out there, they'd be they'd accumulated a certain amount of capital, of social capital. People listened to what they said. People deferred to them. And if the idea of a band is think for yourself, you can see how that might become a bit of a problem. The last thing I want to look at uh, here is Straight Edge, right? Very briefly. Straight Edge, uh, inspired by the song Straight Edge from 1981 by Minor Threat and, the, and their songwriter and leader Ian McKay, the, the straight edge movement is sort of uh, anti-scenester in a way. Uh, the, they proclaim no interest in alcohol, drugs, or tobacco, right? Some people take it even further and promote veganism or the lack of promiscuity, of sexual promiscuity, no caffeine, sometimes no prescription drugs at all, right? Pro-animal rights and so on. The idea of the song Straight Edge was just having an edge over basically yuppies, Right? Remember, we're talking about the Reagan era. And so yuppies are, are the new uh, 
sort of youth movement based in uh, crass capitalism and, um, and consumerism. And they see themselves to some extent as rebels, right? Rebels against the old time traditions. And that's something we'll talk about more in the next episode. But Reagan represents a very interesting conservatism because he's not really, even though he sometimes purports to be, he's not really about small time values. He's about rampant consumerism. And there's a rebellious aspect to that, or at least the yuppies seem to think so. Right. And so their form of conformity was a conformity to a kind of rebellion. You can make the same critique about punk music, of course, that 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 was one of the problems that Crass had. Right. That as they became um, more centralizing, as more people view them as as something to look up to and to emulate, that becomes a kind of conformity. And the same thing with the yuppies. So Ian McKay's ideas, the yuppies, of course, promote a kind of enjoyment of drinking and an enjoyment of sex, a kind of notch on your bedpost sex, right? Promiscuity as a means of, of uh, attainment. You could see it in a way as being something involved in a kind of Soma holiday, right? Sexual promiscuity is getting rid of that gap that's involved in courtship, that's involved in trying to get to know somebody, to, have, to build a relationship based on intimacy. You get rid of, and, and there's a lot of pain involved in that. Anyone who's been in a committed relationship knows that. There's a lot of pain involved in relationships, right? Uh, and so the Soma holiday here would be to eliminate that gap, I'll just have sex with the person. I'll get the sexual gratification out of it without all of the work involved. And that's one of the things that yuppies seem to be promoting. Uh, and for, for McKay, if you avoid drugs and alcohol and, and reliance on any kind of chemical and you avoid uh, sexual promiscuity, then you have an edge. That your straightness here has an edge over other people. You think more clearly. You're able to think for yourself. Of course, this is also the era of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. So straight edge finds itself in this very peculiar position. On the one hand, it's meant to be a kind of think-for-yourself, anarchist, leftist point of view. But on the other hand, there, it, it jibes very well with Nancy Reagan's Just Say No. No drugs, no alcohol. Lead a clean life. Now, Ian McKay, the leader of, of Minor Threat and the author of the song, he claims he never wanted to start a movement. He, he, he was frustrated in some ways that he became the figurehead for this movement. And so once again, we have this basic problem. Somebody says that they think this way, not telling you you ought to necessarily think that way, but offering you a point of view that you can consider. You might adopt part of, might, might not adopt it at all, or might take it into consideration as, as something that, that you at least think about in developing your own view of the world. But instead of that, uh, it becomes a movement. In fact, I would say that the straight edge movement is probably the most successful political action of the punk movement, of punk music overall. That straight edge is the one that had the most concrete political influence. And as it developed into the late 80s and 90s, it became increasingly conservative. It became increasingly um, about conservative points of view, right-wing points of view. And so this thing that might have started off as a left-wing-ish, at least, uh, critique of, of yuppies and their alignment with, with whatever has become conservatism at, uh, conservatism at this point, and we're going to come back to that in the next episode, becomes 
in part because of its obvious uh, affiliations or, or at least uh, implicit affiliations with the Just Say No movement becomes increasingly uh, conservative in spirit, increasingly right-wing. And so this idea of, of a promotion of anti-authoritarianism can help in some ways upon its success to become, well, somewhat authoritarian. And so maybe punk music is just intended to self-implode. Maybe the idea of punk music, at least the political aspect of it, is that it can't possibly last. Because as soon as its message becomes accepted, then the message has failed. Mm-hmm.